So by way of commercial, Pastor Jason had iterated in regards to the catechism lesson, and we have a new thought and idea to how we're going to approach it. Um, actually, it's been something we've done previously, historically before, when we were at the old church in Ariana Street, and that is something we're going to broach to everyone uh, later today, uh, so just keep that in mind. Now, on to the fun part. We have arrived at the sermon in regards to the exposition on the Gospel of John. And now we've come to John chapter 4. I have the privilege of taking on the first portion of it, which will be verses 1 through 26. We will be continuing in our introduction for the audience to see the beginnings of our Lord and Savior's earthly ministry. And here, the Apostle John, the Beloved One, accounts the conversation which our Lord and Savior had with the Sumerian woman. Shall we now look to the Lord our God in prayer? Father, we do thank you for this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord, and we are mindful of the fact Sheer fact that we're here and the presence to give glory to your son. We thank you as you have provided the word and as did the test of time to show that you are still counseling and being with your people. So be with your servant as he teach and feed your sheep and let them have a childlike love and a willing mind to receive your word, especially in today's context in which we will see your love and grace is extended no matter what you've done. It's at Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. And that's important too, because in context of his conversation with the Sumerian woman, I think it is a pointed point that the evangelist wanted to bring this to light. Now, as common practice normally, I would read the text that we will be diving into. But granted, these first 26 verses is a good portion. And being a good Presbyterian, I am mindful of my time up here. So, I am going to piecemeal. And we're not going to so much avoid the verses, but I'm going to piecemeal it piece by piece. So that way, through these first 26 verses, we're going to walk in unison the different propositions that's being extolled. But what is a good Presbyterian without a good introduction? So from an application standpoint, and being that we are of the Reformed faith, I want you to be well equipped to see that all the sermons that the pastors have provided thus far should have some sort of continuity. There should be some harmony. In fact, Sometimes there's a lot of overlap, especially given that the prologue has so much doctrine. Ah, uh, be it now. Where I bring your attention is I want you to pin your focus back to the standards, the Westminster standards. Now in your Trinity Hymnal book, depending, I don't know if we have the newer versions, but you should see when you open up that book, chapter 15 in regards to repentance. And I'm going to broach this to you because I want you to see, especially how the divines kind of phrase repentance onto life. Now, I can't read it verbatim. Again, time is of the essence. But each section has something I want to bring to your attention. So in our standards by chapter 15, of which we understand the divines and how they extol what is stated in the scriptures of repentance unto life. I will begin at section one. It states, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of those of the faith of Christ. Now by section two, I will read to you part A. By it a sinner out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ, 
heart is such penitent, so grievous for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God. I want to actually segue you to section four. It states here, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great, it can bring damnation upon those who are truly repentant. By section five, it states, men not ought to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his sins, particularly. And lastly, as section six, by part A, as every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which and forsaking of them, he shall find mercy. Of the Old Testament, if you have note and paper, or you like to open your Bibles, you may turn and make note of Psalm 32, 5, and first part of 6. David writes, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not hide my guilt. I said, I will confess my wrongdoings to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Salah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time where you may be found. Now, you may be wondering, curious, might be actually intrigued. How is providing the standards tying to an exposition on the first, past, the first portion of John 4, Pastor? Well, I bring to you this. By continuity, from John 2, we saw the very acute proclamation to the beginning of his ministry in which our master performs the miracle at the wedding in Cana. Then he shows by the later portion of the chapter the cleansing of his temple during the Passover, of which down on the markings and providing what is the true mark of the spirit and to show the true birth of one who is in the faith, we see this exclaimed in particular in John three twenty one, John three one to twenty one. But then, now of which we're brought to the work that we're brought to see in regards to his conversation with the Samaritan woman. For by chapter fifteen of our standards, it tells you. Basically, as we seen through what's been revealed in Scripture, the repentance of life, now in our Lord's ministry, he is going to show that in all its glory. For, I tell this again, if you were to consider you standing in front of the Lord and he were to bring your sins up to his forefront, how would you react it? We are privy to this. And interesting the character who plays that part. So of which, when we come to verses 1 through 6 of John 4, it states, So then when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although by verse 2 we state, Jesus himself was not baptizing, rather his disciples. I'll break here. It's a clear understanding, especially as John is under the inspiration of the Spirit to write this gospel. It is to show the disposition of those, particularly in the Sahedrin, notably the case, the Pharisees, of which at their malice, they sought to catch Ari, as they saw the Messiah performing the works, of which he is baptizing more disciples than John. So all of a sudden, the Messiah at John proclamation has been revealed. And based on by the number of baptisms being performed by his disciples, it's very clear to the Pharisees that Jesus is catching wind. He is catching an audience. Particularly, they're thinking, is he more popular than John the Baptist himself? Well then, in John's last testimony, he makes right by which the Christ is to increase as John stated, I am to decrease. For he notes even before that by replying by verse 27, and I bring your attention to John 3, he speaks 
in the prior hands of the Jews in regards to purification. So John makes note of this, that men, and I quote by verse 27, a person can receive not even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. See, this note and continuity in regards to the spiritual blessings that are to come. John is but only a vessel, as he stated to prepare the way. But he makes note and write that the Messiah and the Messiah alone can only provide that of which is from above. Now, of which, how can he do this? We've seen and we may see even further. It is based on this putting, down, putting of hands. Or by which he will just speak it and it comes. Nonetheless, by the authority of the Christ does things happen. Very simply put. Now, if it's to the Pharisees and their disposition that this was not the time the Messiah was to be delivered into their hands, the motive was set now for the Messiah to now move from where he was. For note by what it states by verse number three and number four in John four. He left Judea and he went away to Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Now this journey from Judea to Galilee is 70 miles, which if you were walking, spanned it two and a half days. And upon this, and, based, and, and what I mean by this, details such as this is important because the apostle is trying to bring some relativity in regards to this, particularly the original audience. You must keep in mind now, though we see the applicatory work that this can have in our day and age, there was an original audience to which this gospel was written for. So such details as to how the Messiah was traveling, such details as to who he has his dealings with was important to them. It is our job as ministers now, especially after acute study, to bring more clarity to you. So then I say this because by verse number five in chapter four, it states, he came to a city of Samaria called Sakar near the parcel of the land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And then by verse 6, and Jacob Wells was there. So Jesus, tired from his journey, granted, he has two and a half day walks, so it makes sense. But tired from his journey, he was sitting by the well, and it was the sixth hour. Now, of these particular details, they're not irrelevant, and they're actually pretty apparent. For if you would like to take note here, for the remembrance of Jacob's purchase of the land, I bring your attention if you have pens or you want to turn your Bibles to Genesis 33. For there, Jacob and Esau exchange pleasantries, but by verses 18 to 20, as they make their way um, one another in different directions, it was there, the scripture states, as my, Moses writes, Jacob now came safely to the city of Shechem which is in the land of Canaan. When he came from Padan Aram and camped before the city, by verse 19, he bought the plot of land where he had pitched his tent from the hands of the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And then he erected there an altar, and he called it El Elohi Israel, which translated God, the God of Israel. As to the mention of Jacob's well, there is no mention of it in Genesis. Yet a significance of the well is not lost, for it boasted a huge depth. In fact, it it get down as far as 128 feet. And this is something that was seen through archaeological studies after the time. But we know of what a well was meant to do. It was to be a reservoir to quench the thirst of man and of beast. I actually bring to you Genesis 29, 1 through 4. Then Jacob set out on his journey and he went to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and he saw a whale in the field. 
And behold, three flocks of sheep were lying beside it there, and because they watered the flocks from that well. Now the stone of the mount of the well was large, and when all the flocks were there, they would roll the stone from the mount of the well and water the sheep. And then they would put the stone back in the place in the mouth of the well. So what has the first six verses of John 4 provided? It gave us a setting. That's important because now upon which when we come notably as he makes the conversation with the woman, we should understand at what portion of the day, which the sixth hour for a day that's going from six to six, clarifying the day is about noon, it's going to be relevant. Now, the relevancy of this is notable because one, his discourse here is between one of the inhabitants of Samaria. And it's kind of relevant because if you are familiar with the prior gospels in Matthew 10, notably verse 5, the Messiah actually states as he's rounding up the 12 in the first verses through verse 1 through 4, he makes an acute commandment to them by verse number five. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go on a road to the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans. Wait a minute. Something is not right here. In fact, something looks a little weird. Does not Jacob's land purchase do not, does not, not belong to Israel, why is it that the Messiah makes a point not to visit or enter the city of the Samaritans? In fact, by Joshua 24, verse 32, in that very land, we have that Joseph's bones were buried there. In fact, in continuing in verse 32, it even states, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem, and the plot of the land which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shishem, Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. And they became an inheritance of Joseph's sons. This land that Israel had purchased, how did it become something that we could no longer try? This allows us to actually glean and discern at the relic relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. Of which, let's broach and break the two. The Samaritans thought they were actually the true descendants of Israel. Granted, we saw that, especially with understanding how Jacob had purchased the land in Genesis 33, Joseph Bones being buried there in Joshua 24. It's very plausible they thought they were the proper keepers of the Torah. In fact, the religious site of which resides at Mount Jerusalem, uh, I believe it's called Jerusalem, and albeit this was the place as which they attributed to as to a site of the religious holy place as for the Jews with Jerusalem. But they thought to themselves, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you are not the true place of which true worship of the Lord is conducted. It is with us. It is where we reside, where Jacob had purchased this land. This is the proper place. But ah, uh, all this changes at which the hostility reaches its apex. For if by seeing the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans that originated in Genesis 34, where Simon and Levi, through their trickery, after their sister, Donna, was raped, tricked the men and slaughtered and slain and took and pillaged the city of Samaria. In fact, it was to Jacob's dismay in the fear of attack upon his life that by Genesis 35, they moved to Bethel. Now, 
More recounts of the history of the Samaritans is usually seen in this day and age by General Josephus. But it is very plausible from the scripture standpoint. It could be seen as the same group that is spoken of. If you have your pens and Ezra 4, 1 through 17, Nehemiah 2, 1 through 10. And especially in 2 Kings chapter 17, we're going to see the dismay at which the group comes to uh, comes to heads because of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. You know, especially the Syrians who come and they come and conquer, especially at the latter portions of 2 Kings chapter 17. They try to make the right claim to say we will now worship the true God. But by verses 27 until the end in chapter 17 to number 41, we see that they've corrupted the teachings and the practices. So, it's best to say the Messiah still in part, especially with the Jews knowing full and well that the Samaritans were not, but I mean with the absolute sense of sincerity, were not practicing true, quote-unquote, Judaism. So, if this were to be the case then, and the animosity between the two nations was historic, and it holds fast and true, we should not be surprised as how the woman reproaches the Messiah. Let's dive in deeper, shall we? By verse number seven, as we turn back to John four, it reads, the Samaritan woman who came to draw water, Jesus said to her, give me drink. Now by verse eight, the disciples had gone away to buy food. This will be more relevant. We won't get to it more today, but this will be more relevant in verses 26 to 38 of John four. But nonetheless, we could see now that the Messiah has been left alone with the woman. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Note her reproach. Note that they have been fed and taught they were the true people of Israel, not the Jews. So all the animosity all the ventriol, all the hate is a natural thing to do to another. And the Jews expected as well. Hence why the Messiah said what he said in Matthew 10. So to this retort, which she finds him in contempt, being that he is from the land of Judah, it's more natural to believe. Whoa. Why would you ask me for a drink when you know I think you're a heathen and as the same way you think I am one as well? <laughs> but our Lord, being so wise in his counsel, replies, well, if you knew, by verse number 10 in John 4, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But note her response. She continues in the reproach. She states to him by verse number 7, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where then do you get this quote unquote living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself, his sons and his cattle. <laughs> so, pertaining to this reproach that's continuing, the Messiah is seeing truly very well. I see my first response did not make headway. And it's interesting because given that the Messiah is here availing by which he is wise in the way he states it, availing the opportunity that is bestowed in front of her. Remember by the prologue, we, they beheld his glory, 
face to face. In fact, it's even interesting that as he's going to begin to preach grace and power through the Spirit for a woman who did not deserve it at all, I even bring your attention to Isaiah 65 verse 1. Note here, as the prophet states, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call on my name. How relevant is that for him to speak to a Samaritan woman? So, what are we going to reveal here? It's going to be an interesting show, especially, especially given what our Lord has stated to her. Not so much to Ban's banter between the two. He replies in kind, if you knew, if you knew who's standing in front of you, if you knew the gift of God, does the spirit reside in you? But what's interesting is the telltale part. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him instead to give you living water than to come and thirst. You see here, his note here is going back to the prologue by note, John 1 verse 4, in him was life and life was the light of mankind. I bring to you the relevance, especially here where he brings the living water. It's a harmony and concurrence with all that what we've seen in scripture. I'll tell you now with the author of Hebrews stating in chapter 10, 22, he states, let's approach God with a sincere heart and a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The relevancy here, especially with it being a well, she comes to quench her physical thirst and the Messiah speaks of a spiritual blessing. Oh, well then, it gets even more fun. Four, no, she speaks on to the physical. Well, I see you don't have a bucket. And I told you how deep the well is. It's been down as far as 128 feet. Looks like it's going to be difficult to grab some water with those hands now, isn't it? So, where then do you get this quote-unquote living water that you speak of? I mean, I'm getting the sense you're not talking about the well here. And we are in the land of which Jacob had purchased. We understand what this all means. <laughs> By verse 13 in chapter 4, our Lord answers so well. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But by verse number 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty. But the water I will give him will be in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Attempt number two. Attempt number two. To convey who he was. Now, you note here that I bring before, he distinguishes the difference between the two kinds of water. At the water in the well, it is meant to quench one's physical thirst. But the water that he speaks of spokes with such efficacy that it is perpetually satisfying to one's soul. It's interesting because we see the spirit being spoken of as a continuing flowing fountain. And there should be no thought that as one is in the faith, their faith is continually being renewed and renewed by the spirit. <laughs> the banter here is actually almost pure comedy because for some, they like to think she's just this Nice woman who's having a conversation with the Messiah. And 
she's thinking to herself, eh, there's no need to be bothered. But believe it or not, she is actually making a jest and joke of him. This is why it's so pertinent to understand the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And especially with the Messiah telling the disciples, do not go to the city of Samaria because they're corrupt people. He's making a way to do what here? Well then, let's see. Because by verse number 15 in John 4, as we continue, the woman said to him, after speaking of water being a spring to eternal life, well then, sir, notice this is still a sarcastic retort and reproach. Sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw water. You have this living water. Show me where it is. <laughs> so the Messiah says, okay, you want to continue in jest. You want to continue to retort. I got something for you. He says back to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, some might be thinking because he's making a point that she's come by herself and that the husband has told her, you know, please fetch water for uh, feeding the flock or however they might want to perceive it. They're thinking, oh, okay, you know, she has to just go back and come and collect. That's not the case. Because you see, just like how the Messiah did to one of the disciples in John 1, where he said, I saw you under the tree. And then his response was, oh, surely you're the Messiah because where I was hiding, how can anybody have seen me? But he says, because I said I saw you under the tree, you believe me? What are we looking at here? She didn't come with her husband. So the Messiah makes a note to her by verse 16. Go, call your husband and then come back. Huh. So, <laughs> it's interesting because now the Christ sees and perceives the jeers and the scoffs I wish she only replied to him previously before making this statement. But what he does by applying the appropriate remedy, he strikes her conscience with the conviction of her sin. Not seeing if she came with the husband. He attacks her where it hurts the most. And by which he does this, it is a proof of his compassion, believe it or not. To show you your sin. To show her her sin. Because by her unwillingness from the beginning to be pointedly told once and twice who he actually was. He draws her in now by summoning her to the judgment seat of God. Calvin states here, whenever then we perceive that the oil of Christ has no flavor, it ought to be mixed with wine, that its taste may begin to be felt. Nay more, this is necessary for us all, for we are not seriously affected by the Christ, by his piercings, unless we are aroused by repentance. So then, in order that anyone may profit in the school of Christ, his hardiness of heart must be subdued by the demonstration of his mercy, I'm sorry, his misery, as on this earth, so that his repentance may become fruitful. And that he is softened by the plowshares. Only then will we shake off our flatteries and we would not mock God anymore. <laughs> well, Calvin, you've spoken very well. Because by verse 17 in John 4, the woman answered back and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you have now answered correctly. In fact, when you have said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. 
And the one whom you're with now is not even your husband. This is what you said is true. Oh, so feminism is not an old concept now, is it? Dates back to the days of Israel, huh? Hmm. You see, Christ even presses that conviction even more and openly reproaches her for her wickedness. Because in this single case, do not think it's not fornication because he points it out at the very end. Look at how you have just been trodden through. Look how many men has come and go, did not find you fit to continue to carry their name. So much so, you have been seen as a disobedient woman and you constrain your husbands to divorce you. <laughs> Proverbs 25, 24. It is better to live on a corner of a roof than to share a house with a contentious woman. You know, it's interesting then because it's pretty clear here this wretched woman being seen in the form of prostitution. Could she, on, for some strange reason, on the onset, now become a son or a disciple of God? I mean, what did the Messiah say in Matthew 5.31? It was said, whoever sends his wife away is to give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual immorality makes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He's calling it like it is. Absolutely calling it like it is. Especially with a woman who's considering that, well, everything that I've done so far is righteous. What makes you think you're better? Ho, 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 ho. Well, after convicting her and showing her that indeed, truly, he knows her past. What does she say in retort? By verse 19, the woman said, Sir, I perceive you. You are a prophet. But enough about me. Let's change the story here. Again, this is Jacob's land. Again, this is Jacob's well. Our fathers worship on this mountain. And now, wait, hold on. I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. And yet, you, a Jew, say that in Jerusalem. This is the place where one must worship. <laughs> you don't want to say the magic words now, that I repent of my sins. You don't want to do that. You want to go back and rehash old issues. <laughs> well, I want to tell you right now, it's going to be apparent because especially at the notion that you now want to bring up the fathers. Now you want to bring up the holy place near the mountains. You want to call me a Jew because I come from the land of Judah. And you want to bring up the contention of worship. And yet you say you lived a holy life. Oh, well. What can I say to you here? You see, in thinking... And we kind of do this, right? Thinking that we've committed some sin and somebody calls us out on it. We're like, well, what makes you any better? I mean, now granted our Lord says, you know, take the plank out of your own eye before taking out someone else. But even for us as ministers, when we come and give a reproach, it is not to say we're better than you. It is... Our work is to help assist that your conscience is made clear. And our Lord and Savior tried to do that with this woman. But in her sinful actions, she did not want to take it at this time. At this time. I mean, it's amazing. Paul speaks in regards to those who bring the good news, those who approach this emotion, especially for the ministers at foot. Who calls sin for sin? He says in Romans 10, 15, But how are they to preach unless they are sent? For how beautiful are the feet are those who bring good news of good things. 
you see the necessary need of prophets. As she stated rightly for the Christ, I see you know my life. Indeed, you clearly are a prophet. It is made clear they are to assist to bring to you back into the fold. But don't do like this woman and try to change the subject by rehashing old issues. You're supposed to repent. Well then, <laughs> oh, you thought trying to use the fathers to shade the errors of your life was going to bring any remorse from me. The Messiah answers and say, uh, no, that is not the case. For by verse number 21, in responding properly, he states, and oh, I think this is the proper tone. <laughs> Believe me, woman, that a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or nor in Jerusalem. And note how he states in verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. <laughs> and by verse 23, but a time is coming and even now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And the exclamation by verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen. See, our Lord here makes it very well and actually very bluntly. The hour is here. No more your shenanigans. Don't hide behind the fathers. No more of that. You don't need this mountain. And Jerusalem is not what you think Jerusalem is. So do not lose this. In fact, you corrupted evil people. You even think for a second that you are holy. No, you are not. Because I even called you on your own life and you agreed. Look at the wicked practices that you Samaritans practice. But what makes the Jews different? Why would he even say that salvation is from the Jews? It's because the change in the attitude from which had changed between the two nations. For you see, it is important to understand and note, when Jacob did purchase that land, I brought to you, he showed and made an altar to God. But that was a condition on that particular disposition of time. For as the scripture revealed, and as they were making through, the Lord then commanded that they will build, quote unquote, on the Mount of Zion. And that the law that the Lord will give will, quote unquote, come from Jerusalem. I do not have time to read it, but you can note these two aspects in Isaiah 2. Verse 3 and Micah 4, verse 2. So he charges her with the error of which she thinks that superstition error in the form of worshiping God is being seen in distinctions in places. No, that is not the case. For he even makes it even plainly and clear that but, by verse 23, so he notes to her that the time is coming. In fact, he even says, no, it's now. This is attempt number three. This is attempt number three to show to her, I'm here. I have arrived. Things are going to be changing. And this is how it's going to change. Hebrews 9 verse 10. Since they relate only to food, drink, and various washings, regulations for the bodies imposed until a time of reformation. What? What does this convey? That the law, that there were certain additions, spoke of spirit and truth, but they were concealed under forms and shadows. Until when? Matthew 27, 51, until the veil of the temple was torn. Or how about Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, 
But when the Christ appeared as a high priest of good things, having come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made by hands. This is not of this world in its creation. It's not through the bloods of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once. Not twice, not three times, once, having obtained eternal redemption. So therefore, simply put here, the Messiah is showing here that in contrast of you going to God in terms of trying to speak through the fathers, no, that won't be necessary anymore. For there will be no need for distinctions of places and nations. For by verse 24, he simply states, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Again, amen. <laughs> so the woman said, okay. Okay, I hear you. Believe it or not, by her statement here, She's even showing her teachings in regards to the Samaritan people. She states by verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. See, the law was impressed on the Samaritan minds such that in relation to the Messiah, the woman discerned from what she state, she can recollect what she's been taught and told. Now, albeit there are skewed and corrupted given the historical context of how the Assyrians uh, played a part into bringing false worship to the Samaritans. But nonetheless, in their day, they also too were speaking sufficiently in regards to the expe expectations that the Messiah was indeed coming. She also notes I don't disagree with you. So she's sensing it. Remember, she called him a prophet. So there's a, there's an admiration here. She's showing that, okay, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. You called me out on my sin. Okay, I understand. And now he's explaining even further about the addicts of worship. You don't have to rehash these issues. These issues are not pertinent, especially for one who lives in your own and have your own dispositions in life. Do not bring these up. So she's showing here that, yes, the law is not perfect. She's also showing the Christ is making a good interpretation. But she's also noting that he is, or the one who is to come, is the perfect teacher. So that everything that she's known in life, even though she's a wicked sinner and she's done these things, everything will be made clear once he comes. And our Lord said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Oh my goodness. My goodness. You tried to tell me the first time. I was just trying to be a good Samaritan woman. By condemning a Jew. You try to tell me a second time. I'm trying to be pragmatic. Because I'm trying to figure out. What are you telling me. And yet you still don't look like you have enough. To feed yourself and assist yourself. You called me out of my sin the third time, and yet I realized that indeed you are a prophet, but I don't know. You're still from the land of Jerusalem. I cannot, cannot be associated with you. You're telling me now you're the Messiah? And based on that statement alone, and you're going to see as it moves forward, the Messiah leads the un questionable impression on her that indeed you're speaking with him indeed he's going to make all things clear indeed he is going to bridge the gap tear the veil that separates God and man and so I bring to you this as we're bringing this to a close 
I brought you chapter 15 of the confession in regards to repentance. We have sins particular and we have sins general. In order to grow in your faith, you must repent of those sins. And the aspect of this one, note how she responds to the Messiah as he is calling her out. The tendency to just, no, that's not the case. Yeah, you, you got it right, but no, that's not the case. But rather, when we're going to continue to read it as the pastor is going to go through the latter portion of the chapter, she's going to make a run because now she's going to do something a Samaritan would never thought. Somebody from the land of Judah is here? Walking in our presence? And he's the Messiah? And when this all comes to a crescendo, and to see the way the Samaritans respond to him, you will see clear input how the Messiah changes men's heart. And that is expected of us if we are truly repentant. That's what this is showing here, especially with the way the apostle is showing this in his gospel book. The fact that the Lord changes the heart of stone to a heart of flesh. So the question is now on to us today. How have we been in our repentance? The question is of us today. Have we been repentant of our sins particular and general? And if we need time to examine ourselves, do that. Note the attitude that we're trying to go away from, especially with the way the lady conveyed it with her third response to the Messiah, especially after he called her out. Trying to change the subject. Trying to hash old things. No, no more. Remember, especially that latter clause in chapter 15 in section 6. If you truly repented of your sins, when you'll find mercy, he will grant it. Shall I now let the Lord our God in prayer?